Let's pray for this message. Father, we thank you for what you're doing in the life of this church, in our lives individually, uh, through us collectively. It's just a marvel that uh, such broken people, such as we are, can be used by you to bring honor and glory to Jesus. Father, we gather in this room every single week to remind ourselves of who you are and who we are and how we need you and how you are at work in us and in the world. We would ask you to do that again this morning. This is, Father, the ordinary means of grace. This is us coming together and hearing from your word and singing your praises and coming to you in prayer and all of these things collectively. We marvel at the fact that you use them in us and in the world. So would you use the preaching of your word right now to convict and encourage, to strengthen and sustain. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Well, again, good morning. It's good to be home. Uh, Holly and I have been gone for some time, about a month, up in Canada, traveling around and had a great break. But uh, I've, in all honesty, uh, I love, I look forward to coming home and being here to worship with you. We got to be here last Sunday and got to hear Daniel wrap up Haggai. Uh, Daniel thought, you know, what should I preach on? And I told him Haggai because I thought it would really suck. Uh, but it was just the opposite. Was that rich or what? We got to, yeah, man, absolutely. So good, good stuff. And uh, what a blessing it is to me uh, to, to know that we're being fed and encouraged and growing that way. Well, this morning, we're going to look at a different book, a different kind of book. It's a little book in the New Testament. It's the book of James. Uh, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible because it is uniquely practical and direct in how it teaches us to live our lives. Now, you already know this, most of you do. James was the brother of Jesus. Uh, he didn't just uh, hear Jesus teach. He watched Jesus live. Uh, for nearly 30 years before Jesus began his public ministry, James observed Jesus from the earliest days on, uh, he saw how Jesus treated his mom and dad. That must have been interesting. He saw how Jesus treated other kids in the neighborhood, popular kids, unpopular kids, bullies, and bullied alike. He saw how Jesus handled the know-it-alls, the have-it-alls, the want-it-alls. My point is just this. James actually saw it all. That's important to remember. That informs us about why James says some of the things that he says. And I'm telling you, you can feel this in this book when you read it. James is someone who takes the subject of how to live your life very, very seriously. He talks about things like anger and the problem of anger. He talks about the, the problem of trials and what we do with them and how we approach them and how we get through them. Uh, he talks about how we should view the poor and view the rich and how we should control our tongue. It's a difficult, frankly, impossible thing to do without help from God. He talks about how to access something we all need, and that is the wisdom, the wisdom of God. And I would just encourage every one of us as we spend some weeks in the book of James, would you begin to read this book? You can actually sit down and read this book in about 10 minutes, depending on how quickly you read, right? 
takes me at least that long, but it's an easy book to read. Dive in, read it, get familiar with it. You will appreciate anything that we do here on a Sunday morning that much more because of time that you've spent reading this book called James. Get familiar with it. It is a New Testament wisdom book. It's a little unlike other books of the New Testament. It has a rhythm sort of like wisdom literature. James will introduce a subject, talk about it for a bit, suddenly shift gears in an awkward, almost odd kind of way and go right into something else. And that's what wisdom literature often does. And James does that here in the New Testament. In that sense, it's a little bit unique in the New Testament. Uh, Today, this morning, we begin by asking this question, and that is this. How do you get through what feels ungetthroughable? How do you get through what feels ungetthroughable? How do you get through a situation? How do you get through a challenge? How do you get through a circumstance or a problem in your life that you don't control? You can't control. And what is more, you can't fix. So much so it feels like you just want to give up. It feels like you want to quit. You want to give in. Many years ago, I used to run for exercise. I know that's a shock to many of you. (laughs) We were living in Philadelphia, and uh, I loved to run the hills around that area where we we lived. It was beautiful, and it was just refreshing. It was a great workout. Then when I finished grad school, we moved to Florida, flat as a pancake, flat as a pancake. And because of that, running instantly became easier. So I I, uh, registered for some races, some 5K, 10K, 15K races. Uh, I ran one race at that time called the Heart Run. It was a big race, 10,000 people or more. And I was running with some friends, all of which, frankly, were real runners. And by that, I mean they were very thin, they were very fit, they were very fast. Me, uh, I was the Husky Jeans runner of that group. Uh, I knew I would have to run the race of my life just to keep up with these friends of mine, but I was, I was determined I was going to do this. As the race was about to begin, there was a guy next to me, and anytime, if you've ever run in a race or participated in something like this, there are weirdos, you know, around. They're like, wow, they're so obsessed with this, like, <laughs> chill, buddy, you know, is what you want to say. Well, this guy was, he was ramped up, and he was saying over and over and over to himself, kind of psych himself up. He's saying, what do we do? We run. When do we quit? Never. You know, what do we do? We run. When do we quit? Never. You know, over and over and over. And it was kind of like, you know, weren't sure you really wanted to start the race or run the race around this guy. Adrenaline is flowing. If you've ever done this, you know that. Uh, And the race begins. And even though I knew better, I kind of got caught up in the moment and I started running too fast. I sprinted out. I was literally at the head of the pack that I was running in, right? I was so excited. And I stayed there for a few minutes. And that was a mistake. As always, you know, when you're running any kind of distance, you do fall into a rhythm. And I realized I'm running way too fast here. And so I started to slow down. Eventually, I started to fatigue. In fact, what really happened was I started to cramp. And so I slowed even more and then a little more. And people began to pass me. My friends blew past me. Other runners blew past me. Children, uh, elderly with walkers, you get the idea. (laughs) At one point, I felt so bad about what was happening to me physically and how I felt like I couldn't run. I really thought, I'm, I'm going to have to stop. And I'm only a few miles into this thing. And I was extremely 
discouraged. I thought, oh my gosh, I'm running this race with my friends. I'm not even going to finish the race. My friends are far ahead. The thought occurred to me, you know, it's just not your day. This race today is just too tough. And my side's cramping. I'm thinking, I'm going to have to just quit. There's no way I can finish this. But then that weirdo guy got into my head, right? (laughs) And I'm not making this up. That dumb, stupid mantra that he was chanting to himself, what do we do? We run, you know. When do we give up? Never, never, you know, kind of a thing. And I, I started to run a little bit. It hurt, but I started to run. And then I started feeling a little better, and I started running a little faster. And, and that trend continued until eventually I felt better and better, and the pain and the cramps were gone. I guess some adrenaline was kicking in, and there I was. I was going faster and faster and feeling stronger and stronger, and I started passing runner after runner. I passed the children and the elderly with the walkers. Uh, then I passed my friends, and I won the race. Yahoo! Well, no, that didn't happen, but I never even saw my friends until we got to the end of the race. They were there waiting for me, showered and rested, but, uh, but here's the thing. It turns out, having finished the race and run the way I, I did, I actually did okay for me. I really did. It wasn't a terrible time. Uh, I wasn't last by any means. Uh, I finished the race. I was okay. It was all good, turns out. Back to that question for a second. How do you get through situations that feel unget-throughable? How do you do that? How do you keep going when it feels like you just can't go on? Uh, You've just got to quit. And I'm not talking about lighthearted stuff like running in races or sports moments. Let's apply this question to big stuff, stuff that really matters, like when a person unexpectedly loses their job, gets fired or finds themselves in a financial situation they've got no answer for and they're desperate or they lose an important critical relationship in their life or they get the life-altering, threatening diagnosis. You see, this is the stuff that knocks the wind out of our sails, that depresses us, that discourages us, that makes us think, wow, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know how to keep going in this. How do I get through a situation that feels un-get-throughable? That's the question that James brings up. It was relevant then. Do you think it's still relevant today? Oh, yeah, you bet it is. Listen to how James begins this little book of his, this wisdom book. He introduces himself. He says, James, a servant of God and of my brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings, he says. Now, that little phrase, scattered among the nations, that's pretty important, actually, for understanding this whole book and for understanding what James is about to say. Because you see, in the first century, the Jews believed that the sign of God's kingdom coming here on earth was a, it was a gathered, united, restored, and empowered nation of Israel. All 12 tribes gathered back together, you see, living as one nation, one people, ruling over other nations. But James is not writing to a gathered together, doing really great kind of church. It's not who he's writing to. 
James is writing to a scattered, dispersed church. A church that's asking the question, wow, God, why is this happening to us? Why these hardships? Why these difficulties? A church that's asking the question, you know, where is God in all of this? And it's into that community, Jane Penn's, some remarkable words, words many of you are familiar with, words we really wrestle with. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The NIV puts it this way, uh, consider it pure joy. (laughs) Uh, You know, consider it something to be encouraged about when you encounter a difficulty, a trial, or a struggle. Question, anybody else feel bothered by that? Anybody? Or maybe not just comfortable uh, or just a little bit confused, you know, kind of like, James, what exactly are you saying here? Did you notice James doesn't categorize or differentiate here between trials? That might have been helpful. Uh, Nor does he say if you face trials. He says when you face trials. In other words, trials, difficulty, and the pain that comes with that is coming your way whether you like that or not. You see, there is no self-help secret recipe or silver bullet that's going to deliver you or help you bypass pain, hardship, trial, and difficulty in your life. It's coming your way whether you like it or not. And James knew this firsthand. That was James' life. Remember, James grew up in a relatively poor family. He was one of probably seven or more, we're not sure the total, uh, children. Uh, Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus had four brothers and he had sisters, plural, so we don't know if that means two or more. But, you know, there were seven or so siblings in Jesus' family, in James' family. Many scholars, of course, as many of you know, believe that Joseph, the father, died uh, when Jesus was relatively young. And so James would have been young, too. And uh, that would have left Mary with at least seven children to care for, single parenting times seven. Wow. You think that was easy? You think there was any financial stress or difficulty going on in Jesus and James' family? Jesus was the oldest male descendant in that family. So in that culture, he was now the leader slash provider for that family. You see, we know that Jesus was at least 12 years old because we know that Joseph was around when Jesus was 12. So Jesus is 12, 13, 14. I mean, he's he's of an age that actually makes him a man and makes him a provider for this family. Uh, So James, think about this. James watched Jesus process all of this, every bit of it. What do you think James saw? You think he saw Jesus being kind of a nervous Nelly? Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Or fretting about the next meal. How are we going to feed this bunch? You know, Jesus thinking, well, you know, it's, it's all up to me now. I've got to fix this. I've got to just worry, worry, worry. I mean, what do you think James saw? I bet that these circumstances were exactly where Jesus learned to pray and learned to practice saying things like, Give us this day our daily bread, you think? Um, I bet this was when Jesus learned the truth of what he later taught 
which is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Well, what things? What things, Jesus, exactly are you talking about? Well, necessities, like what we eat, what we drink, what we're going to wear. And you could add to that list where we're going to sleep. You can seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus learned, and God's righteousness and all of these necessities would be added to you. I have a hunch that James is remembering earlier days in all of the things he writes in this little book. He's remembering how he saw his older brother, Jesus, address trials. Keep that in mind every time you read this book. I think James is trying to get us to do and to live, to do what Jesus did and to live the way Jesus did as trials and difficulties and challenges came into their lives. There's a really important word that we often miss right at the beginning of this book. It's the word count or consider it all joy, that thing. When James says that, what James is saying to us, he's saying, would you please think? Would you stop and consider Would you exercise the brain here? He's saying, think about this. Ponder your circumstances, your situation. When it comes to your trials, trials of various kinds, it says, don't just sit in your feelings about this trial. Most of us don't feel happy about a trial when it comes into our life. But James says, consider Consider how you think about the trial. Consider how you interpret them because we all do interpret trials. Um, You see, what you believe about adversity in your life will determine how you respond to it, I think. What you believe, what you think, your framework, in other words, for how you see adversity in the world or see adversity in your life will significantly determine how you respond to that adversity. James knew this 2,000 years ago. In fact, I'm sure that's exactly what he observed in Jesus. Look at how Jesus views this trial, this challenge. Maybe the way Jesus viewed the death of their father, Joseph. The challenges of providing for a family as a very young man. The challenges of helping Mary raise all the siblings. I'm sure James saw Jesus count it all joy many times in many situations. And that changed the way Jesus faced challenges and therefore James too. I get such a kick out of this. I share this kind of stuff with you a lot uh, in part because it's just a way to get back at, I suppose, the, the, you know, the, the whole industry of psychology. I mean, I appreciate psychologists and what they do, and I, I, I really do, and I certainly need one, but, the, uh, but, I, but I do get a kick out of this. So there, there's a cognitive psychologist, right? Uh, this guy's well-known, Albert Ellis. He died like in, I don't know, 2006 or seven or something like that, but he came up with what is called the ABC model. A lot of people have parroted this and used this model to describe how we respond to challenges, how we respond to adversity. Basically, it goes like this. He said, there's always an activating event. Think of that as A. There's an activating event, a situation, a struggle that comes our way. And then there's B, the belief that you have about that situation or about that struggle, right? This is how you interpret it. This is what you make of it. And then there's C, and that's the consequences. That's what comes from that belief that you have about that situation. See, based on your belief about this particular event, this particular trial, this particular challenge, you feel a certain way. 
You make certain choices. You do certain things. You take certain actions. That's the A, B, C model. Nothing new. This is kind of an old theory. Uh, kind of a silly example, but this will help make my point. It's like if the Colorado Rockies beat the Dodgers to win the pennant and go to the World Series. Now, I know that would be a miracle, but that's what, you know, imagine that situation. The activating event, the Rockies win the pennant, right? What would you believe about that? Well, some of us would believe God does miracles, right? God is good. God is just. God is a redeemer. He is able to make something come out of nothing. He is faithful. He is gracious. We'd feel hope. We'd feel joy. We would celebrate. We would feel positive. But someone else uh, maybe might have a a very different belief around those circumstances, the same circumstances, say a Dodgers fan who might think there is no God. <laughs> or why, why was God not good? Why did he not answer prayer? Why is God not just? I mean, I don't know what exactly they'd be thinking, but they would be thinking about that situation very differently than, than we might. And the point is silly, but it's obvious. You see, the same situation, Rockies win the pennant, depending on what a person believes about that event will result in very different, very different actions and reactions. And James is saying, whenever you face a difficulty, whenever you come up against or enter into a trial, consider, consider not just the negative, which is where our minds almost go automatically, we get frustrated, we get confused, we don't like what's happening, we wonder why, why is this happening to me, why is this happening now? We, we doubt even sometimes the goodness or the, the presence of God with us. How could this happen to me, God? Why, why would you let this happen? James says, well, consider there may be a different way to understand this event. There may be something else that you should believe about it that can give you hope. There may be wisdom that can change how you respond and keep you running the race. And I know this raises questions. I mean, it does for me. Questions like, you know, does this mean we're supposed to enjoy our struggles and our hardships? I mean, does this mean we should seek out pain and suffering? Does this mean God enjoys watching us go through difficulties? And, and just the short answer, and I hope this is super clear, the short answer to that is no, 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 no. That's not what James is saying. The Bible does not teach that God wants people to suffer and he enjoys watching that. Uh, God does not delight in the suffering of people. In fact, the way James talks about joy here in this text, in this passage, would lead us to believe that we can be experiencing trials, pain that comes with that trials, and frustration, and at the same time, experience joy. In fact, the joy that James talks about isn't so much a, a feeling as it is an understanding, a, a perspective, a wisdom perspective. He's inviting us to see our trials and to see our struggles from a decidedly wisdom perspective. And if you stop and think about it, there's, there's always a wisdom perspective from which you can look at things. And then there's the I'm frustrated, I'm God, this ticks me off kind of perspective from which you can look at things. James is inviting us into the wisdom perspective. In fact, James wants us to see that our trials are actually uh, we don't like to hear this, but actually important to us. They, they actually reveal our true character, what's going on inside us. 
So therefore, consider it joy when you go through a trial because that trial will tell you something important, something you need to know about you. James uses a Greek word here, parasmos, for trial. And it literally means, it's talking about a, a situation, a circumstance, a struggle, an adversity that actually does reveal one's true character. It's sort of like how a stress test can reveal the state of your heart, the condition of your physical heart. Get on a treadmill, get the heart rate up, right? That stress can reveal if the heart is healthy. That stress tells you something you need to know, something that's important. And this happens to all of us when we face various kinds of adversity, big or small even. We discover something about ourselves. Sometimes we discover something good. Sometimes we discover something not so good. The point is this. The trials that we face in life don't just test us. They actually reveal us. Now, I'm ashamed to admit that too often in my life, when under pressure, when facing a trial, I find things going on in my heart or in my mind that I'm not very comfortable with. I, I wish they weren't there. They say something about what's going on in me under the surface. For example, some things that make me angry that really shouldn't. Not if I'm coming from a wisdom perspective, but these kind, you know, lines, unnecessary long lines. You're standing in a grocery store. This happened to me yesterday. There was a long line because there was only one teller. And I'm, I'm, I'm no, getting noticeably internally angry. Now, what's going on there? Or at traffic jams. I mean, I've shared so many examples with you of how Holly is in traffic, you know. <laughs> No, how I am in trap, you know, the, what's going on there? Or, you know, silly, dumb disagreements that Holly will uh, have and I will have with each other, that, that they don't matter. They're utterly, utterly, utterly insignificant. Why do they matter so much in the moment? Why do I respond with anger in those situations? Or having to call Social Security, that's right, I'm at that age where I have to do that occasionally, or, or Medicare or insurance companies, angry. Angry, impatient. Yes, I, I don't mind waiting some more, you know, whatever. But questions, questions. James is saying, consider, think about. And it, so here's the question. Why does that happen in me? Why do I get angry? What am I believing about that situation, that challenge, or that trial in that moment? What am I believing about the world that I live in? You know what it owes me? I mean, does the world know who I am? Why is this taking so long? What am I believing about me? Well, I'm super important. My time is more important than your time. Uh, what am I believing about God? God doesn't care, or he wouldn't make me call Medicare, you know, that kind of thing. And so I have to ask, you know, are, are beliefs like that? Because those, if, you, if I'm being honest, those, those are some of my beliefs. Well, you know, are those beliefs correct? And it's easy to live without ever examining those kinds of beliefs in us. James is calling us to examine them. James is even saying trials can get you to examine them if you will. Are those beliefs correct? The answer is no. No, they're not correct. You see, it's in the midst of trials that our beliefs become painfully sometimes apparent. There's a philosopher, Paul Tillich, that wrote these words. He said, suffering takes people beneath the busyness of their life 
and reminds them they are not who they thought they were. (laughs) I think he's right. James is saying, when trials come your way, at least consider it an occasion for joy. If for no other reason, right, you might discover a truth about you. Or you might discover a truth about God that you need to remember or that you need to know. Or you might discover a truth about the world that we live in. Something you need to know. Something you need to learn. Something you need to confess. Something you need to forgive. You see, trials, the trials that we face don't just test us. They actually reveal us. This is important for our growth. It's so important. In many ways, they're a form of God's mercy how God works. God is saying, I'm not going to leave you like you are. I'm not going to just let you be who you are, are stuck in being. I'm going to grow you up. I will use this trial to challenge your, and you fill in the blank, whatever it is, your cold heart, your arrogance, your impatience, your greed, your self centeredness. I'm not going to leave you like you are. And so I will let you go through this trial because in it you can discover some things you need to know about you and about me. Now, James doesn't stop there. That's just kind of where he starts. He also says that trials actually are used by God to make us stronger when we cooperate with God in them. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know, well, what, James? What is it that we know? You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. What would that effect be? Well, that you may be perfect. That means mature and complete, lacking nothing, nothing that you need to navigate life from a wisdom perspective. You see, he says, for you know that the testing of your faith, that word testing is is one that is used elsewhere in the context of purifying and and redeeming and uh, refining. The refining of your faith, says James, produces something. It produces steadfastness. Other translations, perseverance. In other words, you gain something that you wouldn't otherwise have when you go through trials. That is an important thing to remember. You grow in ways you wouldn't otherwise grow when you go through a struggle of some kind. You gain the ability to get through what feels ungetthroughable. We need that, friends. Every one of us need that. We live in a remarkable period and place in human history. We enjoy, and we should be very thankful for this, We enjoy more freedoms, more comforts, more luxuries, more uh, gratifications on the whole than any people of any place or any time before us. It's, It's just remarkable. I mean, almost any food item, and some of you are thinking about food right now, uh, almost any food item that you can imagine is available to you just a short drive away. Almost any kind of entertainment is available to you. Some of you are taking advantage of this opportunity right now. Or on, on your cell phone, on your TV, on your computer, right? Almost any kind of recreational activity can be ours. Skiing, hiking, biking, camping, boating, uh, sailing, jet skiing, you name it. On and on and on the list goes. The point is we are used to getting what we want when we want it, when it comes to enjoyments when it comes to things we like. And all of this tends to produce in us a very low adversity threshold, very low. 
So much so we tend to doubt the goodness of God when we go to Trader Joe's and they don't have the salsa we want. Or you go to Starbucks and they've discontinued the specialty drink that you had come to really enjoy. Little, petty, stupid kinds of things feel to us sometimes like a trial. We've come to believe that we should be in control. We've come to believe that life should go our way, always. I mean, we've come to believe that our wants and our needs should be met. Not later, right now. Right now, I want this right now. And when that doesn't happen, we cry, foul, that's unfair. You know, when the service is slow or the food is not to our liking or the sermon is a little bit long, uh, we get nasty. You should read the notes I get. point is just we need to grow that's the point and we need to develop steadfastness and perseverance steadfastness is not about staying on top of all your problems and being the kind of person who can manage your problems well steadfastness actually comes from two greek words and the words mean remain under (laughs) the idea is staying power under continuing difficulty we need that ability every one of us needs that ability Honestly, so much of life is just that. It's remaining. It's standing strong in difficulty. Even when you don't have answers, even when you don't have solutions, even when you are without seeing the end in view or you're under stress or you're bearing a burden or you're facing a challenge, we need to be able to stand strong, to keep trusting, keep believing, keep praying, and keep saying, thy will be done. That is what mature, whole, and complete and perfect faith does. According to James, it hangs on, it hangs on. I know someone who went through a divorce, a huge trial. I mean, that's up at the top of the chart, kind of a trial. And it was difficult to watch. The pain was very great. The trial was honestly almost overwhelming and the outcome didn't seem to match all the effort that got invested into trying to save that marriage. All the prayer, all the ways that this person tried to honor this relationship, the ways that uh, they tried to do things differently, and yet the relationship did not work out. And this person says to me, I, did, I thought I did everything right. Everything I thought God wanted me to do. And what do I have to show for it? You ever said that? <laughs> I did everything right, but what do I have to show for it? You ever felt that? I was faithful. I went to church. I prayed. I was in my small group. I gave. I was doing all the things right that I thought I should do. What good did it do? What do I have to show for it? I didn't get what I prayed for. I didn't get what I wanted. What's so interesting to me is, and I, and I do see this uh, as a pastor. I have the privilege sometimes to get to see it people who are going through a trial or have just come out of a trial, they often don't see it. But this person couldn't see that all the ways that they uh, had already become a stronger, more mature person. This person had acted consistently in humility. This person had stayed faithful to their vows. This person was now a more truthful, more patient, and frankly, more humble person. The problem was that this person just couldn't see it yet. The hurt was too deep and it was too close. The trial was too near. And they couldn't see how the trial had made them stronger, but I could. I could see it. Made her a more mature person. 
The point is often in our brokenness, often in our sinful limitations, in our finitude, we view trials as evidence that God doesn't care. But we forget that God is more concerned always with our character than our circumstances, which is why God allows us to struggle with the sin in us and in the world. God is even going to use the sin in us and the sin in the world. God is going to take the difficulties that come because of those kinds of things. He's going to allow those difficulties to happen. He's going to let us uh, experience failure in spite of all of our efforts. You see, these things are not a sign that he doesn't care. On the contrary, in a very mysterious way, they're actually the very sign that he does. So, it's part of what God means when he says confusing things like this. And Isaiah, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You ever feel that? What is God up to? Is he doing anything? Yeah, he is. You know, it's interesting, we learn this when we reflect back on our situations and our struggles in life. If you ask a person what in their life helped them grow the most, you ask anybody that question, people usually don't talk about their successes and their achievements, not usually. They talk about their struggles and their failures and the trials and the difficulties that have come into their life because that's when they grew. It's hard to see and appreciate when we're in the middle of trials, I know. But we know when we look back, we see the truth of this. There's a writer that a lot of people appreciate a great deal, and I haven't read very much of his stuff, but he can be insightful. His name is David uh, Brooks, and he writes this. He says, when most people think about the future, they dream up ways they might live happier lives. But notice this phenomenon. When people remember the crucial events that formed them, they don't usually talk about happiness. It is usually the ordeals that seem most significant. Most people shoot for happiness but feel formed through suffering. Do you agree? Understand, James, at the very outset of this little book, is giving us brotherly wisdom, which is the best kind. He's connected to us by blood, spiritual blood, the blood of Jesus. And he's giving us brotherly wisdom, time-tested wisdom, stuff he's observed, stuff he has learned from, stuff he has put into practice. And James says, consider it a joyful thing, maybe even a good thing, that God can use a difficult or even bad trial in your life for good. He's fleshing that out for us. You see, trials in your life mean exactly that God is at work. It's proof you can still grow. It's proof you can get stronger. You can grow in steadfastness. In fact, this too is part of James' point, namely that our trials are always purposeful. There's an amazing picture of this in the Gospel of John. The disciples encounter a man born blind, right? And they ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. They wanted to know, you know, who's, who's to blame for this, Jesus? I mean, who's at fault? Why, why did this happen? And Jesus' response is very instructive. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Whoa. Okay. Then who did? 
He says, but this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, sometimes there isn't a good answer to why something happens exactly. Uh, In fact, the closest we get to a good answer or to anything like an answer is just to know that God has a purpose in it. He's going to use it to display his work, his glory, his goodness, his redeeming ability, his power, his love, his grace is going to get displayed in the midst of this trial. What we know is for certain God is at work causing the evil. No, 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 no. But he's going to work through it in, in spite of it. We know that God is at work. God can make good come of it. This is true of every trial. Every difficulty, the work of God is present with his children. Years ago, I visited a young man and a young woman in a hospital. They just had a baby who was born dead. And um, they were new Christians. I, I didn't know what to say. I mean, what do you say? So I just went in uh, there to the hospital room and sat down and we, uh, we held hands and we wept together for a while. I just wasn't, I was about to muster the courage to say something that probably would have been stupid. Um, the dad said words that I will never forget. He said, and this was through his tears, he said, God is good. Even now, I was blown away. He was pastoring the pastor. God is good, even now. Where did he learn that? Well, in the trial, in the pain, in the questions, in the doubt. See, our trials in this mysterious way have this power actually to draw us closer to God, to Jesus. The person who just so happens to be the one we need the most and, and, and the one who is most good, most comforting, most caring. I mean, nobody can tell you why a young couple has a little baby who was born dead. Nobody can tell you why there are tragic deaths, why there are shootings, why there are miscarriages, why there is financial disaster or disease or people born blind or born lame or natural disasters other than, yeah, there is evil in the world. There is evil in me. But I can tell you this, your trial is not where God is absent. Your trial is where he wants to meet you, wants to comfort you, wants to work for your growth and your good. And I know in the moment of pain, we find that hard to believe. And I know sometimes we want to quit. It just feels like it's unget-throughable. And I know even now for some of you, you're thinking, oh, yeah, this is just the kind of crap a pastor says in a church. I mean, I know, you know, what else is he going to say? Friends, I'm an old pastor. And I have seen and been in 
a lot of hardship and suffering over the years. I've seen it in some of your lives. I've experienced it in my own. And I am telling you, James, brotherly wisdom, is rock bottom true. When you are in a place of hardship and trial, you need to count it all joy. God is at work. James says it later on in this wisdom epistle of his in another way. And I love this. And this gets quoted a lot of times without the, the broader context. James says this. He says, draw near to God. Do you think he ever saw Jesus do that? Draw near to God in the midst of a trial. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But he doesn't stop there. <laughs> that, that piece of self-examination, that counting it, that considering it, that thoughtful process of what is this situation that I'm in and what's happening in my life. James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. In other words, get your head in the game. Know who you really are. Know how you need to repent. Know how you need to grow. You need God, moron. I mean, that's kind of what he's saying. And then he says, he actually says this with a pleading tone. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And you know what he'll do? He will exalt you. He'll get you through the trial. And in the process, he will grow you up. He will use your suffering to draw you closer to Jesus. That's part of what the trial is for. And when you do that, you'll discover that Jesus is sufficient. And Jesus is present. And Jesus is good. He is so, so good. Where do you think James got this wisdom? Jesus is good enough to use your suffering and to grow you up. You know, instead of praying at this point, I, I just want to read a, a couple of verses to you. you. You would expect me to go here, right? You know, some of you are predicting, oh, I know what he's going to read. You're right. This is Hebrews chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews knows the same thing to be true that James knows. And so in chapter 12, after the great hall of fame, right, all these people that have persevered, they were steadfast and and they were, they were able to remain that way because of God's work in them. The writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Are you kidding me? You've got to be kidding. Jesus could look at what he endured on the cross with a spirit of joy. That's what James is telling us to do. Look at your trial differently. Have joy in it. That don't, doesn't mean like it. That means grow in it. Jesus scorned its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Same message. 
Amen.